Chapter 5 of Jeanne d'Arc, Her Life and Death. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ella Quint of Applebacksville, Pennsylvania. Jeanne d'Arc, Her Life and Death by Margaret O. Oliphant. Chapter 5 The Campaign of the Loire, June-July. 1429. The rescue of Orleans and the defeat of the invincible English were news to move France from one end to the other, and especially to raise the spirits and restore the courage of that part of France which had no sympathy with the invaders, and to which the English yoke was unaccustomed and disgraceful. The news flew up and down the Loire from point to point, arousing every village and breathing new heart and encouragement everywhere, while in the meantime Jeanne, Partially healed of her wound, on May ninth she rode out in a malay, a light coat of chain-mail. After a few days' rest in the joyful city which she had saved with all its treasures, set out on her return to Chinon. She found the king at Loch, another of the strong places on the Loire, where there was room for a court, and means of defense for a siege, should such be necessary, as is the case with so many of these wonderful castles upon the great French river. Hot with eagerness to follow up her first great success and accomplish her mission, Jeanne's object was to march on at once with the young prince, with or without his immense retinue, to Reims, where he should be crowned and anointed king, as she had promised. Her instinctive sense of the necessities of the position, if we use that language, more justly her boundless faith in the orders which she believed had been given her from heaven, to accomplish this great act without delay, urged her on. She was straightened, if we may quote the most divine of words, till it should be accomplished. But the maid, flushed with victory, with the shouts of Orleans still ringing in her ears, the applause of her fellow soldiers, the sound of the triumphant bells, was plunged all at once into the indolence, the intrigues, the busy nothingness of the court, in which whispering favorites surrounded a foolish young prince, beguiling him into foolish amusements, alarming him with coward fears. Wise men and buffoons alike dragged him down into that paltry abyss, the one always counseling caution, the other inventing amusements. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Was it worth while to lose everything that was enjoyable in the present moment, to subject a young sovereign to toils and excitement, and probable loss for the uncertain advantage of a vain ceremony, when he might be enjoying himself safely and at his ease, throughout the summer months on the cheerful banks of the Loire. On the other hand, the Chancellor, the Chamberlains, the Church, all his graver advisers, with the exception of Gerson, the great theologian to whom has been ascribed the authorship of the Imitation of Christ, who was reported to have said, if France deserts her and she fails, she is none the less inspired, shook their hands and advised that the way should be quite safe and free of danger before the king risked himself upon it. It was thus that Jeanne was received when, newly alighted from her charger, her shoulders still but half healed, her eyes scarcely clear of the dust and smoke, she found herself once more in the antechamber, wasting the days, waiting in vain behind closed doors, tormented by the lutes and madrigals, the light women and lighter men, useless and contemptible, of a foolish court. The maid, in all the energy and impulse of a success which had proved all her claims, 
had also a premonition that her own time was short, if not a direct intimation, as some believe, to that effect, and mingled her remonstrances and appeals with the cry of warning, I shall only last a year, take the good of me as long as it is possible. No doubt she was a very great entertainment to the idle seigneurs and ladies who would try to persuade her to tell them what was to happen to them, she who had prophesied the death of Glasdale and her own wound and so many other things. The Duke of Lorraine, on her first setting out, had attempted to discover from Jeanne what course his illness would take, and whether he should get better, and all the demoiselles and demoiselles, the flutterers of the antechamber, would be still more likely to surround with their foolish questions the stout-hearted, impatient girl who had acquired a little of the roughness of her soldier comrades, and had never been slow at any time in answering a fool according to his folly. For Jeanne was no meek or sentimental maiden, but a robust and vigorous young woman, ready with a quick response, as well as with a ready blow, did anyone touch her unadvisedly, or use any inappropriate freedom. At last, one day, while she waited vainly outside the cabinet in which the king was retired with a few of his counsellors, Jeanne's patience failed her altogether. She knocked at the door, and being admitted, threw herself at the feet of the king. To Jeanne, he was no king till he had received the consecration necessary for every sovereign of France. "'Noble Dauphin!' she cried. "'Why should you hold such long and tedious counsels? Rather come to Reims and receive your worthy crown.' The Bishop of Castor, Christopher de Harcourt, who was present, asked her if she would not now, in the presence of the king, describe to them the manner in which her council instructed her, when they talked with her. Jeanne reddened and replied, I understand that you would like to know, and I would gladly satisfy you. Jeanne, said the king in his turn, it would be very good if you could do what they ask, in the presence of those here. She answered at once, and with great feeling, when I am vexed to find myself disbelieved in the things I say from God, I retire by myself and pray to God, complaining and asking of Him why I am not listened to. And when I have prayed, I hear a voice which says, Daughter of God, go, go, go. I will help thee, go. And when I hear that voice, I feel a great joy. Her face shone as she spoke, lifting her eyes to heaven like the face of Moses, while still it bore the reflection of the glory of God, so that the men were dazzled who sat, speechless, looking on. The result was that Charles kindly promised to set out as soon as the road between him and Reims should be free of the English, especially the towns on the Loire, in which a great part of the army dispersed from Orléans had taken refuge, with the addition of the auxiliary forces of Sir John Fastolfe, a name so much feared by the French, but at which the English reader can scarcely forbear a smile. That the young king did not think of putting himself at the head of the troops, or of taking part in the campaign, shows sufficiently that he was indeed a pavrasseur, unworthy his gallant people. Jean, however, nothing better being possible, seems to have accepted this mission with readiness, and instantly began her preparations to carry it out. It is here that the young Seigneur Guy de Laval comes in with his description of her already quoted. He was no humble squire, but a great personage to whom the king was civil and pleased to show courtesy. The young man writes to Saint-Mai, that is, it seems, his mother and grandmother, to whom, in their distant chateau, anxiously awaiting news of the two youths gone to the wars, their faithful son makes his report of himself and his brother. 
The king, he says, sent for the maid in order, Sir Guy believes, that he might see her. And afterwards the young man went to Selah, where she was just setting out on the campaign. From Selah he writes on the 8th June, exactly a month after the deliverance of Orleans. I went to her lodging to see her, and she sent for wine and told me we should soon drink wine in Paris. It was a miraculous thing, tout divine, to see her and hear her. She left Selah on Monday at the hour of Vespers for Romorantan, the Marshal de Boussac and a great many armed men with her. I saw her mount her horse, all in white armor excepting the head, a little axe in her hand. The great black charger was very restive at her door, and would not let her mount. "'Lead him,' she said, "'to the cross which is in front of the church.' And there she mounted, the horse standing still as if he had been bound. Then turning towards the church, which was close by, she said in a womanly voice, as Savoy de Femme, "'You priests and people of the church, make processions and prayers to God for us.' Then turning to the road, "'Forward,' she said." Her unfolded standard was carried by a page. She had her little axe in her hand, and by her side rode a brother who had joined her eight days before. The maid told me in her lodging that she had sent you, grandmother, a small gold ring, which was indeed a very small affair, and that she would fain have sent you something better, considering your recommendation. Today, M. d'Alençon, the bastard of Orléans, and Galcourt were to leave Selah, following the maid and men are arriving from all parts every day, all with good hope in God, who I believe will help us. But money there is none at the court, so that for the present I have no hope of any help or assistance. Therefore I desire you, Madame Ma Mère, who have my seal, spare not the land, neither in sale nor mortgage. My much-honored ladies and mothers, I pray the blessed Son of God that you have a good life and long, and both of us recommend ourselves to our brother Louis, and we send our greetings to the reader of this letter. Written from Selah, Wednesday, 8th June, 1429. This afternoon are arrived M. de Vadum, M. de Boussac, and others, and Lahira has joined the army, and we shall soon be at work. On Besonera Biento, may God grant that it should be according to your desire. It was with difficulty that the Duc d'Anson had been got to start, his wife consenting with great reluctance. He had been long a prisoner in England, and had lately been ransomed for a great sum of money. Was not that a sufficient sacrifice? the Duchess asked indignantly. To risk once more a husband so costly was naturally a painful thing to do, and why could not Jean be content and stay where she was? Jean comforted the lady, perhaps with a little good-humoured contempt. Fear nothing, madame, she said. I will bring him back to you safe and sound. Probably Alençon himself had no great desire to be second in command to this country lass, even though she had delivered Orléans, and if he set out at all he would have preferred to take another direction, and to protect his own property and province. The gathering of the army thus becomes visible to us. Parties are continually coming in, and no doubt, as they marched along, many a little chateau, and they abound through the country, each with its attendant hamlet gave forth its master, or heir, poor but noble, followed by as many men-at-arms, perhaps only two or three, as the little property could raise, to swell the forces with the best and surest of material, the trained gentlemen with hearts full of chivalry and pride, 
but with the same hardy, self-denying habits as the sturdy peasants who followed them, ready for any privation. With a proud delight to hear that on prisonero biento, with that St. Michael at their head, and no longer any fear of the English in their hearts. The first Bezon on which this army entered was the siege of Jarjou, June 11th, into which town Suffolk had thrown himself and his troops when the siege of Orléans was raised. The town was strong, and so was the garrison, experienced, too, in all the arts of war, and already aware of the wild enthusiasm by which Jean was surrounded. She passed through Orléans on the 10th of June, and had there been joined by various new detachments. The number of her army was now raised, we are told, to twelve hundred lances, which means, as each lance was a separate party, about three thousand six hundred men, though the Journal du Sege gives a much larger number. At all events, it was a small army with which to decide a quarrel between the two greatest nations of Christendom. Her associates in command were here once more seized by the prevailing sin of hesitation, and many arguments were used to induce her to postpone the assault. It would seem that this hesitation continued until the very moment of attack, and was only put an end to when Jeanne herself impatiently seized her banner from the hand of her squire, and planting herself at the foot of the walls, let loose the fervor of the troops and cheered them on to the irresistible rush in which lay their strength. For it was with the commanders, not with the followers, that the weakness lay. The maid herself was struck on the head by a stone from the battlements which threw her down, but she sprang up again in a moment unhurt. Sue! Sue! Our Lord has condemned the English. All is yours, she cried. She would seem to have stood there in her place with her banner, a rallying point and center in the midst of all the confusion of the fight, taking this for her part in it. And though she is always in the thick of the combat, never, so far as we are told, striking a blow, exposed to all the instruments of war, but injured by none. The effect of her mere attitude, the steadiness of her stand, under the terrible rain of stone bullets and dreadful arrows, must of itself have been indescribable. In the midst of the fiery struggle, there is almost a comic point in her watch over Alençon, for whose safety she had pledged herself, now dragging him from a dangerous spot with a cry of warning, now pushing him forward with an encouraging word. On the first of these occasions, a gentleman of Anjou, M. de Lude, who took his place in the front, was killed, which seems hard upon the poor gentleman, who was probably quite as well worth caring for as Alençon. Avant, gentil duc, she cried at another moment. Forward. Are you afraid? You know I promised your wife to bring you safe home. Thus her voice keeps ringing through the din. Her white armor gleams. Sue! Sue! The bold cry is almost audible, sibilant, whistling amid the whistling of the arrows. Suffolk, the English Bayard, the most chivalrous of knights, was at last forced to yield. One story tells us that he would give up his sword only to Jean herself but there is a more authentic description of his selection of one youth among his assailants whom the quick perceptions of the leader had singled out. "'Are you noble?' Suffolk asks in the brevity of such a crisis. "'Yes, Gaume Renaud, gentleman of Avonay. "'Are you a knight?' "'Not yet.' The victor put a knee to the ground before his captive. The vanquished touched him lightly on the shoulder with the sword, which he then gave over to him. Suffolk was always the finest gentleman, the most perfect gentle knight of his time. "'Now let us go and see the English of Mung, cried Jean, unwearying, as soon as his victory was assured. That place fell easily. It is called the Bridge of Mung in the Chronicle, without further description. 
therefore presumably the fortress was not attacked, and they proceeded onward to Bourgeoncy. These towns still shine over the plain, along the line of the Loire, visible as far as the eye will carry over the long levels, the great stream linking one to another like pearls on a thread. There is nothing in the landscape now to give even a moment's shelter to the progress of a marching army, which must have been seen from afar, wherever it moved, or to veil the shining battlements and piled up citadels rising here and there, concentrated points and centers of life. The great white castle of Blois, the darker tower of Bougency, still stand where they stood when Jean and her men drew near, as conspicuous in their elevation of walls and towers as if they had been planted on a mountaintop. On more than one occasion during this wonderful progress from victory to victory, the triumphant leaders returned for a day or two to Orléans to tell their good tidings and to celebrate their success. And there is but one voice as to the military skill which she displayed in these repeated operations. The reader sees her, with her banner, posted in the middle of the fight, guiding her men with a sort of infallible instinct which adds force to her absolute quick perception of every difficulty and advantage the unhesitating promptitude, attending like so many servants upon the inspiration which is the soul of all. These are things to which a writer ignorant of war is quite unable to do justice. What was almost more wonderful still was the manner in which the maid held her place among the captains, most of whom would have thwarted her if they could, with the consciousness of her own superior place, in which there is never the slightest token of presumption or self-esteem. She guarded and guided Alençon, with a good-natured and affectionate disdain, and when there was risk of a great quarrel and a splitting of forces, she held the balance like an old and experienced guide of men. This latter crisis occurred before Bougency on the 15th of June, when the Comte de Richemont, constable of France, the brother of the Duc de Bretagne, a great nobleman and famous leader, but in disgrace with the king and exiled from the court, suddenly appeared with a considerable army to join himself to the royalist forces, probably with the hope of securing the leading place. Richemont was no friend to Jeanne, though he apparently asked her help and influence to reconcile him with the king. He seems indeed to have thought it a disgrace to France that her troops should be led, and victories gained by no properly appointed general, but by a woman, probably a witch, a creature unworthy to stand before armed men. It must not be forgotten that even now, this was the general opinion of her out of the range of her immediate influence. The English held it like a religion. Bedford, in his description of the siege of Orléans and its total failure, reports to England that the discomfiture of the hitherto always triumphant army was caused in great part by the fatal faith and vain fear that the French had of a disciple and servant of the enemy of man called the maid, who uses many false enchantments and witchcraft by which not only is the number of our soldiers diminished, but their courage marvelously beaten down, and the boldness of our enemies increased. Richemont was a sworn enemy of all such. Never man hated more, all heresies, sorcerers, and sorceresses, than he, for he burned more in France, in Pitou and Bretagne, than any other of his time. The French generals were divided as to the merits of Richemont, and the advantages to be derived from his support. Alençon, the nominal commander, declared that he would leave the army if Richemont were permitted to join it. The letters of the king were equally hostile to him, but on the other hand there were some who held that the accession of the constable was of more importance than all the maids in France. It was a moment which demanded very wary guidance. 
Jean, it would seem, did not regard his arrival with much pleasure. Probably even the increase of her forces did not please her as it would have pleased most commanders, holding so strongly as she did to the miraculous character of her own mission, and that it was not so much the strength of her troops as the help of God that got her the victory. But it was not her part to reject or alienate any champion of France. We have an account of their meeting given by a retainer of Richemont, which is picturesque enough. The maid alighted from her horse, and the constable also. Jeanne, he said, they tell me that you are against me. I know not if you are from God, de la part des deux, or not. If you are from God, I do not fear you. If you are of the devil, I fear you still less. Brave constable, says Jeanne, you have not come here by any will of mine, but since you are here, you are welcome. Armed neutrality but suspicion on one side, dignified indifference but acceptance on the other, could not be better shown. End of section 6